I hate having to yeah. root against greatness. Hey there, and welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of the previous iteration of Hot Takedown, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear. Today is April 16th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, how's it going, Sarah? Good. How are you? I'm well. Uh, Jeff is on vacation today, but we are joined on the line from Chicago by senior sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, guys. How are you? Good. Did you get any sleep last night after that uh, late night Warriors Clippers game? I haven't slept much, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. Happy to join you guys. We're so glad to have you. See, people think that uh, the life of a sports writer is so glamorous, but it's it's not. <laughs> it's mostly sleep deprivation. Yeah, exactly. And writing on deadline. On today's show, we'll check in on the first round of the NBA playoffs. We'll dissect the Masters and Tiger Woods' huge win. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. First off, the NBA playoffs. It's been an exciting opening. The biggest shock, of course, came Monday night when the Golden State Warriors blew a 31-point lead at home to the heavy underdog L.A. Clippers. Chris, you wrote about this game overnight. What the heck happened? Steph Curry picked up a fourth foul basically midway through the third, and Steve Kerr subbed him out. And it you know, normally wouldn't look as if it mattered because they were, at that point, up by basically 20 points. Um, they built the lead from there and still were doing fine. The The last play that the Warriors made to extend the lead all the way to 31 was Kevin Durant blowing by uh, Montrezl Harrell from the Clippers and getting fouled while he was dunking, and so that put them up 31. And you just kind of figure this thing is, is in hand. Basically, at that stage, stuff just started going wrong. Steph came back into the game and wasn't able to really hit anything. Um, Durant fouled out of the game early and was frustrated again for the second game in a row by Pat Beverly. The Warriors having their bad turnover problems kind of creep in again, um, similar to two years past. And then the the real thing that I think the Clippers probably won't get enough credit for that people haven't watched them play, uh, Lou Williams was just incredible and basically had a 30-point half. Um, you know, in addition to basically having 30 points and seven assists in, in the second half, I think maybe 31 and seven. Um, over the second half. And so he was just incredible. Um, Montres Harrell running the pick and roll with him. It just, it became kind of like a, a floodgate that the Warriors couldn't close after a while. And they, they couldn't make stops. They weren't able to grab rebounds. Um, all in addition to something that I also think is kind of going to be forgotten about, at least for the time being, is DeMarcus Cousins potentially having had a really serious injury to his quad. Um, which is going to shake up their starting lineup. And, and, you know, in our projections, it looked like it had a pretty big impact too as well. Yeah, it was sort of a double whammy for Golden State there with Cousins going out. And that could be a season-ending injury, they're saying now today. Neil, what effect will the loss of Cousins have on the Warriors, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, what was so weird about last night was that they built that huge lead 
after Cousins got hurt. Like, it, oh, it, yeah. you, if you kind of looked, if you knew two things about this game, you knew that the Warriors blew a huge lead and that Cousins was hurt, you might think it would be a situation a little like uh, Kawhi Leonard had against the Warriors when he was with the Spurs a few years ago where the Spurs were winning and then Kawhi got hurt uh, in that playoff game and then everything just sort of snowballed and, and the um, Warriors came back. That's not what happened last night. Uh, Cousins was lost, I, what, what, I think like four minutes into the game or something like that. Uh, and, and they kind of built it without him. And mm-hmm. that was in a weird way in keeping with the way that they've played most of the season uh, after Cousins came back with his injury. Golden State was actually 2.7 points of margin per 100 possessions worse with Cousins on the floor than off during the season, according mm-hmm. to basketball reference. And so you can kind of spin it that way and say, like, you know, was Cousins really all that important to them? But it's important to note that late in the season, they were kind of clicking. And when he was on the court with the other Warriors starters in the last nine games of the season, they had a plus 30 points per 100 possessions net rating, according to ESPN Stats and Info. And that's a big reason why why when we put in Cousins' injury into our model, it actually dropped the Warriors' championship odds by 13 percentage points. So I, I think this will have a big impact on them. They're still heavy favorites, obviously, uh, and, and I think we give them a 44% chance of winning the championship, but they're not quite as commanding favorites. Uh, I, I do think maybe the Cousins thing is the more uh, long-lasting effect of this game going forward. So we, we should say that Golden State still won by 17 on Saturday, but Chris, did the Clipper comeback expose any big flaws that could come back to haunt the Warriors? I mean, I really don't think so. I think more than anything, what you saw is just again that the Warriors defensively weren't weren't locked in. That's kind of what Steve Kerr hammered in the the point he hammered home. The Clippers were the best team in the league uh, when it when you get the game close, when it's a clutch scenario in the last five minutes of a tight game. So, I mean, if the Warriors can avoid being in situations like that, and I think they can if they really want to, I I think that they're probably fine. But it did expose the turnover issue, which we've known to be a problem for years with them. Well, before the Clippers stunned the NBA world, there were some other surprising early results over the weekend. Three underdogs took the first game in the series, Brooklyn, San Antonio, and Orlando. The Magic's win had some in Central Florida ready to buy their tickets to the finals. Here's Mike Tuck on Open Mike from Orlando's 96.9 The Game on the number seven seed Magic's place in the Eastern Conference pecking order. I mean, you can make an argument that Orlando's a lot closer to where Milwaukee and Toronto are in the Eastern Conference than they are toward the back end of the East, and they showed it. So, Chris, is Orlando actually underrated right now? Yeah. No, I, I think they probably are. They're legitimate. I mean, I think that they were a team that if you were paying attention and watching games outside of just kind of the major market, you'd see that they were playing really good basketball for a couple months there, really, and fully deserved to make the playoffs. So that first game, it really wasn't a fluke. When you look at their situation the second half of the season, they had literally the same record that the Raptors did after the All-Star break. Actually better if you go back to February 1st and go from that date instead. They had a better record. They were top 10 on both the offensive and defensive sides of the ball. They have some scoring. Nick Vucevic was an all-star. Their big challenge is that um, they, they have very little experience at, at guard off the bench, but in the in the playoffs, you're not really playing your bench as much. There were a couple things that happened that may not happen again for the Raptors, um, but really when you look at what the what the Magic were doing, they really made Kawhi Leonard work. He still had an efficient game, but they made him work. But... Kyle Lowry, the biggest thing 
from my opinion, is that he's had now the last playoff, five playoff opening games, um, he's combined for 33 points. He shot 0 for 7 in this game. I know he was a plus 11 in the game. Um, I think a team high plus 11 in this game. But he, he had a really brutal turnover at the end of the game where he just threw the ball away and it resulted in a basket going the other way. Um, so, I mean, they're going to get better play out of him. He historically has always done this and then had a very good game two, game three, and, and so on. But I, I feel like they need more out of him. So the Magic deserve a lot of credit for getting a lot of things right and putting themselves in position to steal a game and then actually doing it. I think the Raptors will probably bounce back just fine. That's kind of what we've seen with most of these teams in, in the game twos. But um, but I'm, I'm very interested to see it because the Magic aren't necessarily going to go away easily. I think the Raptors are going to have to take it from them. Our model still doesn't really believe that they are at the top of the East, that their talent matches those top teams in the East. Is that is that right? Does our model have that right, Neil? Yeah, that's one of the interesting kind of differences between our model right now, which sort of is based on the talent level of the team, like you said, and our model in years past where we used something called an ELO rating, which just looks at how a team does in terms of their on-court results, their wins and losses, the margin of the game, who they played, where the game was, etc., Something like ELO actually does think pretty highly of the Magic now, especially like a pure ELO rating. The average is 1,500. It would have them up above a 1,600, which is in the sort of higher echelon of teams as it goes. Um, and, and you mentioned that in our current model, uh, the Magic are still like a 1528. Um, and so that's a huge difference. And I think that speaks to sort of how we found in our research that the hotness that a team plays at, especially late in the season, uh, the Magic had done all of this winning, uh, the bulk of it during a period in which a lot of teams had either clinched the playoffs or they were kind of jockeying for seeds, but sort of also resting people. Uh, and, and we've seen this before where teams can kind of pad their record in some ways down the stretch of a season. And, and pick up you know steam and appear to have momentum but maybe it's not predictive in the playoffs and so I think that's one of the reasons why when you look at the underlying talent of the roster is sort of like eh, it's yeah. it's good but it's not necessarily you know the 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 take that we heard at the top of the segment uh suggesting that you know the magic are now close to the rafters or bucks or something in terms of talent is is a bit much I think I was also really surprised if we're talking about game one upsets uh with how flat Philly came out in their first game against the Nets I mean I think the sixers are, are probably one of the biggest wild cards in this entire playoffs. You know, they, they may have the best starting five in the league at this point without Cousins being there for the Warriors. And so that that's valid, obviously. But then you consider the fact that they only had 10 games together, uh, partly because Butler was traded to the Sixers. And then after a while, they get Harris much later. And so none of these games are all with the, that one group together. And so... You know, Brett Brown was even saying to me and other reporters recently, uh, you know, I love this team, but you still have to see how they actually gel and, you know, whether they can develop the cohesion you need to win a title. And the jury's still out on that. And I think it very much looked like that in game one. Now, they atoned for it in game two and won pretty handily. And that's been the story of the Sixers all season. They really have not played to their potential uh, as often as anybody would have expected. And they have so much talent on that team. Uh, and 
it still is kind of a question of whether they can put it together and actually win. Uh, we have this power rating that's based on, you know, the talent on a team. Our ratings really do not think the Nets are very good. We actually have their rating as being that of a below average NBA team right now uh, in terms of the underlying talent. And, and our ratings haven't believed in them all year, hardly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, credit to them to kind of prove it wrong. And so game one surprised me, but it didn't shock me necessarily because I thought the Nets have a deeper team. The Nets beat them with a 59-point effort from their bench, uh, with Dinwiddie playing really well, with Levert playing really well, and they know more about who and what they are. The Sixers are going to have their hands full when they go to Brooklyn. The Nets basically played them even better than even through a game, a game and a half, and that's pretty impressive considering the youth that Brooklyn has and the lack of star power that Brooklyn has relative to what the Sixers do. Well, the underdogs are sure keeping it interesting so far in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Should be a couple of good series that we still have to watch. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your NBA expertise, as always. Thank you guys for having me. Before we move on, let's have a word from this week's sponsor, Upstart. Applying for a loan is a lot like applying for a job that you don't get to interview for. Loan companies usually make their decisions based off your credit score and history without getting to know the whole you. Now, thanks to Upstart.com, it never has to be that way again. Upstart is revolutionizing the way you borrow money by rewarding you for your job experience and education in the form of a smarter interest rate. That would have been so useful when I was coming out of college, had no credit history to speak of. It would have been nice to be able to get a loan in that kind of way. Unlike traditional credit underwriting, which could be biased against people with a short credit history, Upstart goes beyond the FICO score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They make it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate in less than two minutes without affecting your score. The best part is that once your loan is approved, the funds will be transferred to you the very next business day. Over 100,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards and student loans, to fund their weddings, or to make a large purchase. Free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is ranked number one in their category with over 300 businesses on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash takedown to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate takes only two minutes and won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash takedown. On to the Masters. On Sunday, Tiger Woods completed an incredible comeback, winning the Masters 14 years after his last win at Augusta and almost 11 years after his last major victory at all. The win was his 15th major, just three behind Jack Nicklaus's 18. Nicklaus himself had something to say about Tiger's chances of catching him. He said, The next two majors are at Bethpage, where he's won, and Pebble Beach, where he's won. He's got me shaking in my boots. Neil, is Jack right to be nervous? Well, it's a little complicated, right? So, you know, if you were to just look at Tiger Woods' resume at this particular point in time, his current age, uh, age four, this is his age 43 season in the PGA Tour, uh, we would expect a golfer who has 15 majors at his age 43 season to end his career with 15.2 uh, based on our historical research of golf career aging patterns. And I should say that this is only he has won this season one out of one that have been played. 
So say he picks up another one, what would his career projection come out to? It would be 16.2. Basically, you just add, you know, there's like some slim chance of getting each additional extra major. But basically, by age 43, uh, history says that golfers are pretty much done winning majors. And Jack Nicholas is the big kind of exception to that. He won one uh, at age 46. Uh, but, you know, I think... That would be the argument against Tiger Woods being able to chase down Jack from behind. And like you said, he needs three more majors to tie Jack uh, at 18. Tiger has 15. Um, and it seems like a tall order. But And I should also say that basically in our little like career arc projection type thing, uh, by winning this Masters uh, on Sunday, Tiger restored his eventual end of career projection back to where it was after the 2014 season. So he basically has just made up for the lost time of his like lost injury, you know, riddled seasons uh, between when he was last, you know, winning money titles and, and playing well, not winning majors, but still playing well. And now, but he's, he would have needed to win more over that span, uh, and it would have been easier for him to win at that span also if he had stayed healthy, um, just to kind of keep pace with Jack. The last time that he was projected to have more than 18 career majors was at the end of the 2010 season, uh, when he was projected to have 18.4 career majors. So again, the aging curve in golf, we like to think of golfers as being able to stick around forever, and there have been cases where great golfers at extraordinarily old ages like Tom Watson in his like late 50s contended on the last day for a major but ultimately fell short um, and in today's game it's such a younger game uh, that it, it's difficult to see Tigers having a little bit more than just a few years left in his window to realistically compete we know he's probably the most talented golfer of all time um, uh, the biggest phenom in the history of golf uh, that Really, it was just a matter of staying healthy and being out there, putting himself out there. His form is as good as it's been in a long, long time. And so that, in concert with, we've seen Tiger, like Nicholas says in the take, um, he has these courses that it seems like once Tiger, especially when he was younger, when he was actually, you know, in the prime of his career, uh, you think about Torrey Pines, for instance, that's a course where he just owned that course. Like every year, every time there was a tournament played there, whether it was, you know, uh, the, the regular tournament there, when they had a major there, he won it. Like uh, it seems like he sort of has a tremendous amount of course knowledge. And that came into play also on Sunday where you saw some of the people that hadn't played, uh, you know, as many uh, masters uh, uh, it sort of not know exactly what to do with certain reads on the green, not know where to, you know, handle a certain pin placement uh, and, and kind of shoot for, uh, you know, a certain area on the green. Tiger Woods has played this course so many times in his life that he probably could do it in his sleep. And I think that uh, this was a case of that course knowledge kind of really paying off for him. So maybe this is like the nexus between Tiger Woods' experience, meeting with his rejuvenated form and, and health, and maybe that will sort of help him exceed these historical expectations. Well, and that's perfect for this year because he is playing two of the three courses for the rest of the majors are courses he knows extremely well. Beth Page, he won in 2002 at the U.S. Open. 
the uh, Pebble Beach. He won at the 2000 U.S. Open. And that 2000 uh, uh, U.S. Open where I think he was the only player who was under par. He, he was like 10 or 11 under par and nobody else was even under par at all. So it just seems right that he would win there, right? Everything is setting up for this kind of storybook um, return for Tiger. Um, but it does, you know, I wrote before the Masters that this was maybe his last best chance to win the Masters again. Uh, and you could probably write that same story, maybe I will, uh, about these other ones because it does seem like this is sort of the the window of opportunity is open for him, but it won't be much longer and that this is playing out perfectly because of that. But just to pump the brakes a little bit, it is really tough to win, even as the favorite in a golf tournament, to win. Your odds of winning going into any given tournament uh, are extremely low. Like, you would be... If if you had to take a bet between the field and Tiger Woods in any of these, even when he was in his prime, you would take the field every time. Even with his winning percentage being what it was uh, at a certain point, Tiger Woods was winning like 25 to 30 percent of the tournaments he entered, which is astronomical insane yeah. <laughs> uh, at, at a certain point in his career. Uh, and that includes majors and non-majors. Um, but... That's still 75% of the time someone other than Tiger Woods beat Tiger Woods uh, head-to-head in a tournament that he entered. So, you know, golf, for it's there's a reason golf has such a low winning percentage for even arguably the greatest player of all time is that it's just freaking random. Like, there's a lot of stuff. I think I said this during last uh, last week's podcast, too, is that, you know, the, the razor-thin edge between knocking home a putt that you know, helps you win and have it just go past the hole or slightly misreading, you know, the the um, contours of the green and having the ball, uh, you know, roll off the front of the green and kind of end up, you know, way off course. Those things, I think, are native to golf a lot more than other sports. We think of, you know, like tennis is a natural comparison for golf, these country club sports that you can play, you know, older uh, than you can in some of the other sports that we talk about. Yet the best players win in tennis at an unbelievably high rate, uh, and the best players in golf don't win anywhere near that rate when it comes to Grand Slams. And I think you, all you have to do is just hold up the structures of the sports and look at the the ways in which luck can introduce itself in golf. And there's so many different ways that luck can kind of ruin even the best golfer's performance. So that's why if you look at Tiger's odds of winning at Bethpage, it's 8-1. to one. That's really good by golf standards, but it also means he's more likely, much more likely to lose than, than win. And I think that speaks to the limitations that even a great golfer like Tiger Woods uh, has in terms of exerting his will on a course. It still doesn't seem super likely that Tiger will overtake Jack, but Maybe Jack might keep shaking in his boots for uh, another couple of years. I mean, Jack Nicholas has always been so gracious, by the way, about this, because you knew that Tiger Woods, you know, he pinned up, uh, you know, newspaper clippings of Jack Nicholas's majors on his, you know, in his room as a child when he was growing up. Yeah, I mean, it, like he has had this specific goal in his mind for for decades uh, his whole life and so for jack nicholas you know to to kind of encourage tiger woods even through all of the the scandals and all of the injuries and all you know everything uh to just be like you know i'm hoping that he 
that he does it. I'm I'm rooting for him. You know, I think that that speaks to Jack Nicklaus as a as an ambassador for golf because golf is better when Tiger Woods is playing great. Well, let's leave that there and move on to our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, the rabbit hole belongs to Neil. That's right. So uh, just to continue talking about Tiger Woods because it was <laughs> we can't such, get enough. Well, I think, I mean, I wouldn't you agree enough. that that was, probably that will be the biggest story of of the year yeah. in sports. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, this, this comeback that we had been waiting for for such a long time finally actually happened. Yeah. And so that sort of had me thinking about, where does this rank relative to the other great comebacks? And ESPN did a nice little roundup of some ones from different sports. So they talked about, you know, Mario Lemieux coming back uh, from cancer uh, and, and then also coming back another time from retirement and hockey and, and still being the best player, uh, one of the best, if not the best player in, in the NHL. That was a great comeback, you know, that uh, that stands up there. But we wanted to look at ones that we could sort of look at using the numbers and find the probabilities of a great a once great player sort of bottoming out and then becoming great again uh and so i built a little bit of a model that looked at um the nba and major league baseball to just find cases where a player had been sort of an elite performer earlier in their career and then they hit a point where I calculated the odds using a regression model of like based on your recent performance and, uh, you know, how your track record, but you're also your age. What were your odds of ever becoming a truly elite player again? So, for instance, the greatest comeback in the NBA and really only one of the only like true surprising ones, according to this model, was Michael Jordan's return to becoming an elite player after his first retirement. So in 1996, he, uh, didn't play to the standards of Michael Jordan in 1995. In fact, uh, I think it was Nick Anderson had the great quote that was like, that didn't look like Michael Jordan out there wearing that number 45 jersey or something when they were losing the magic in the playoffs. Well, he came back, led the Bulls to three straight championships, and was once again the best player in the league after that 95 season. So he had missed a whole season in 94, and then he also had been not the player that he once was. Still good, but not uh, elite in 95 at age 31. You would have said that there was only a 2.1% chance that Michael Jordan would return again to being the best player in basketball. Basketball, and he did. Great comeback. And uh, it, it's worth pointing out that most great seasons in the NBA don't catch anyone by surprise. That that 2.1% was the lowest in the NBA. And most uh, even surprising seasons by this model have like a 17% chance of happening, a 32% chance of happening. That In the NBA, basically what I found is the thing that ends your reign as an elite player is not necessarily like, you know, underperformance or sort of hitting a lull and and kind of not being able to get back to it but it's basically an injury either stops your career while you're elite or you walk away from the game while you're elite and you sort of end your career if you're a truly great NBA player on your own terms a lot more often than you see in other sports like baseball which I'll talk about (laughs) in a second Um, so in baseball the greatest late career comeback I think I mean you have to have room for Ted Williams obviously 
came back from tours of duty fighting in wars and remained uh, an elite player on the other side of those. Those are amazing. But my favorite one of all is Lonnie Smith. So Lonnie Smith in the 1980s, he was a good player uh, in, uh, you know, early in his career in his 20s and uh, had some seasons that, you know, they were maybe not super elite, but they were all-star type seasons um, early in his career. He had a 6.2 war season, according to baseball reference in 1982. But then he hit this incredible lull in the middle of his career when he left St. Louis for Kansas City. Uh, He had a feud with the Kansas City Royals GM, uh, John Scherholz at the time. And there's a tremendous video by John Boyce of SB Nation uh, that you should look up on YouTube about Lonnie Smith's amazing uh you know career path and and that one particular incident with John Sherholtz but basically at its lowest point with Lonnie Smith he was in his mid 30s he had not been good for 3 years uh his odds of being an elite like MVP level player again were 0.2% and he, he, it seemed like his career was just about over. Well, he signs on with the Atlanta Braves in 1988. And then after one year where he didn't really play all that much, uh, in 1989, he has what I think is one of the most amazing comeback seasons by any player ever. He had 8.8 war in 1989, just out of the blue. He didn't actually finish high enough in the MVP voting to, uh, you know, relative to his war. He only was 11th, but, uh, he, he had like a Mike Trout-esque season just out of nowhere after almost being out of baseball uh and having all kinds of personal problems uh uh, in the in the five years that led up to that and so to me that one had a 0.2 percent chance of happening if that may be even less likely than tiger woods coming back and winning another major because sarah you had numbers on tiger uh his odds even at at his low point in his uh in in his struggles over the past few years yeah in 2017 he had a 10 to he had 10 to 1 odds of winning another major about a 10% chance. Yeah, so I mean, some of that speaks to the belief that people still had in Tiger Woods that may have been irrational, but now is looking less irrational uh, at the time. But I think also, you know, there have been some amazing comebacks in other sports. Yeah, these comebacks are fascinating. The the NBA thing where you just decide to walk away, that has fascinating implications for me with LeBron. Is he going to decide he's had enough will his body has taken enough you know will he see more injuries over the next couple of years and decide to pack it in because you don't really see him getting worse really it's hard to imagine that anyway yeah it's really like it is funny how in like baseball players they do sort of take a back seat i think sometimes in the in the final few years of their career they'll maybe stick around as shells of their former selves like Derek Jeter in his final couple years with the Yankees um you know and, and you might not even be a starter necessarily, but rarely do we see the NBA player who's like a true goat level, you know, inner circle Hall of Fame type player allow themselves to be sort of degraded to that level. And and, and in some ways, the talent level of the uh, uh, of the great NBA players and their ability to sort of 
impose their will on the game is so strong, even at an enhanced age. So it's fascinating to think about, you know, the different aging patterns of different sports and how hard it is in some of these sports just to stay relevant when you're old and how, I don't want to say easy it is as an NBA player, but, you know, uh, how, how comparatively it does seem to, you, you're more capable of doing it at an older age. Yeah. With Lonnie Smith, I'm just glad he, uh, you know, went to the Braves and was still around for the 91 World Series yes, to make really a key base running mistake the in the seventh inning. <laughs> Chuck yeah. So thank you, Lonnie, for sticking with it, coming back, having that great war season in 89. That and... never would have happened if he had not overcome the the 0.2% chance. Exactly. Odds. See, yeah. everything comes back to the Twins 91 World Series victory. It just does. Everything happens for a reason, Sarah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you, Neil, for joining us. And thank you uh, to Chris for joining us as well. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is a new podcast still, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe and please review and rate the show. It really does help others discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Chris, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.